broadcasting from fluidic space. This is Politrix. The time directive, the Declaration of Human Rights, the United Federation of Planets, the United Nations, the World War II, the Dominion Federation War, the Art of War, the Teachings of Sirach, Jesus Christ. Welcome, everyone, to Politrex. We're so glad that you're here with us to talk all things politics through Star Trek. My name is Barry DeFord, and we, of course, are not alone here. I have my often imitated, never replicated, wonderful co-host, Mr. Shashank Avaru, with me. How are you today, Shashank? Namaste, homo sapiens. I am wonderful. I just realized that we are on episode 17, so we are closer to episode 25 than episode 1, and episode 25 will be the big spectacular all crazy, all awesome, all political, no filler. I, I'm just making stuff up as we go. I'm just excited about episode 25. Yay! Yeah, episode 25, we can get it in before the end of the year. Then it, it matches really well with Deep Space 925. I'm still appreciating getting to watch Far Beyond the Stars in the uh, big theater area of STLV. That was pretty great. I didn't actually get to Far Beyond the Stars today in my uh, ambitious Star Trek rewatch, but uh, I did pretty well. Well, for those of you listening, today is 26th August, and it is uh, my uh, favorite uh, white Canadian 35th birthday. Happy birthday, Barry. I'm so excited to talk to you on your birthday. Oh, yeah, it's a pretty great birthday present to have to get to uh, chat with Mr. Avaru and then for you guys to hear this. So, yeah, this shouldn't be out too uh, too late after, after my birthday here. We've got some mixing to do and all that. Uh, before we get to the actual news, I've Speaking of Far Beyond the Stars, how amazing was it to sit at STLV 10 feet away from Rene Auberjanois while watching Far Beyond the Stars before the Far Beyond the Stars panel? Well, yeah, that was the best part is there he is signing autographs and like looking up and watching the people acting and stuff. I really do feel the uniqueness of it was was just so wonderful. And I think it proves more than anything that the writing of Star Trek goes far beyond the mere sci-fi of it. And it is the greater messages and stuff. And of course, science fiction is such a great way to express those things, but it isn't the only way. And that's uh, that's just something that that just shows the versatility of the message of Star Trek. I just love it. I, I was just happy to sit there and watch it with you because I know how much that episode means to you. I know it's your favorite DS9 episode, right? It is probably my favorite Star Trek episode. So you're completely removing into darkness. It's not even in your top three. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Jim, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm messing with you. Jim at Trek Ranks, if you're listening, um, I'd love to talk about my top five Star Trek episodes. Maybe I'll send you a message, a thesis perhaps. Yeah, Jim, if you're listening, we'd love to be on the show that you and I belong on the same network on, which is the Tricorder Transmissions Network, and we are proud members of that network. And where can people find us? Uh, tell us more about the network, Barry. Yeah, we are definitely members of such a fantastic network, one we're very proud of to be a part of. And I mean that. We get a lot of freedom here, and we get a lot of autonomy, and I really do feel like we're part of a family, and that's pretty awesome. So if you want to get in touch with this fantastic crew of folk, including yours truly and Shashank, you can find us now on our website by going to SpeakPipe. There's a little sort of hanging um, hanging button there that you can have a look at, and you can click on it and leave us a message, which is pretty darn cool. From there, you can also, um, if you're interested, you can also support us on Patreon even just a dollar um 
you know, if, if you can't uh, make that uh, large, anything larger, even just a dollar is wonderful to get you access to special exclusives. Shashank and I talking about, um, you know, puppies and, and life, love and happiness and what it's like in, uh, in Canada and all that sort of stuff. Um, that was a text I just got, if you guys heard that. So I'm just going to leave that in because that was funny. That was a Jawa from Star Wars. I have a friend who's a big Star Wars fan and he just texted me. Anyways... I'm not going to give everyone my phone number, but if people want to get in touch with us on social media, Shashank, how would they be able to do that? The way people can get in touch with us on social media is very simple. All you need to do is follow at Polytrex on Twitter. That's P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. We'd like to think we get some pretty smart political jabs in there. And like most Twitter users, we tweet something and we get very, very proud of our tweets. Every now and then they'll be smarter than we think, but mostly they're dumb, fun jokes. And you should follow us because we are awesome on Twitter. And you should check out our new banner, which is, I'm just going to leave it at, oh my God, is that one of the greatest photos of all time? Or is that one of the greatest photos of all time? But check us out on Twitter. And you can also see it on Facebook. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook. We are under the same name, P-O-L-I-T-R-E-K-S. Fantastic. And and I'm wondering which banner you're talking about, because we've had two fantastic ones. There was the one from uh, that Las Vegas newspaper, and then there was the one we had with Mr. Takei. I'm talking about the one with Mr. Takei, which is our new banner right now. So yeah, speaking of which, uh, that's going to actually going to be part of our main topic today. So after we finish off here with the news, we're going to be getting into a very interesting conversation today with the ever wonderful Mr. Jay Kuo, who is a member of Team Decay and a amazing artist, philanthropist, entrepreneur in his own right. So with that, we now will go into the news. everyone for sticking around for the new segment usually when we do the news it's more negative than positive that's what it has been if you are a faithful listener of the show you have noticed that and we do our best to bring our humor in but today i am proud to announce with all the joy that i can muster within my heart barry we have some good news man michael cohen the lawyer of donald trump has been indicted that is fantastic and completely unsurprising news. <laughs> it's weird. It's like knowing, uh, no, it's like I went to a hospital knowing full well that the tumor on my foot is nothing but like a little mosquito bite, but then still just getting a thousand dollar diagnosis that tells me it's not a cancerous tumor. It just feels good. Like just, we're so desperate for any kind of good news. We will manufacture narrative so it can become good news. Well, you know, and, and, and that's a, that's an interesting point you make because personally, I think the whole thing's a big old farce, the different types of back deals and everything like that, that got this whole administration up and running is, is rotten to the core. And you're right. You know, like we're, we are sort of celebrating over the scraps of, of a larger, um, you know, obstruction of justice that I personally, I think started with Henry Kissinger, but you know, it's, it's insane that we've, we've kind of come this far to be excited 
and and I don't want to like ruin the excitement and bring everyone down, folks. But do you see where I'm sort of saying is like it's amazing that people are happy about this. You know, I keep I keep trying to find the best Star Trek version of the Trump family and the Trump cabinet and the the Trump mafia that has taken over the White House. But here's the closest I've come. The Trump people, like the 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 big Trump group, the the Trump pack, if you will, is like the Dominion. If the Dominion superpower was not shape shifting, but being incredibly stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If if you want to call that maybe a superpower, I don't know. I think my my biggest um, my biggest Star Trek connection is sort of the um, the the bad moral idea, right? The idea that that there are those of us who can be okay with with power allowing itself to corrupt itself absolutely right it, it's sort of like the like the the bad moral in star trek insurrection admiral doherty and how he is just working for his own interests in you know i mean in a system that that is supposed to work against corruption you know and and sets rules to assure that that those in power are are working for the benefit of the people and everything like that right so that's just where I kind of come to this is is Star Trek is is again being predictive of itself almost you know like we all love the idea of Starfleet we say we are Starfleet and all this sort of stuff but Star Trek itself even sort of says like never forget that there could be wolves in your fold uh, and and I think that's something to to kind of keep in mind and and remember um, as we sort of try to emulate that idea Starfleet itself I have come to learn is such a fragile idea and and it relies really on idealism and relies on it it trusts that everybody involved across the universe the hundreds of thousands if not millions of th- living beings involved in starfleet will somehow all come together and they will agree to this even for for the future a relatively crazy idea so it's like just again like Starfleet, but the Trump team is like stupid freaked. Like, why did they ever think they were going to get away with this? Like the way things are going with the indictments and everybody in their team falling one by one by one. And these people are not just admitting guilt; they are taking plea deals and they are ratting everyone out. And that's what they usually do. In a in one of the earlier episodes, I talked about how. The way the legal system with such cases works is they find the lower ranks people and they get all these lower ranks people to keep ratting on people above them like a reverse pyramid scheme until they get to the top. And if that's not, if I'm not wrong, there was a news article that also broke out uh, recently that said that Trump has been told that the countdown to impeachment has already started. And if in November the Democrats take the House, he will either have he will the best way out for him is resigning so it's it's the dominion getting their act called on and they're being cornered by everyone in the universe it's everybody uniting against them and each of them being taken out one by one by one it's it's going to be slow it's going to be hard it's definitely going to either get violent or really really complicated but I feel like this is the third act of the presidency. Like this, this is where it starts. The end, we're, the end is nigh. 
you've you've got i mean i think you're right i think this this will this will end the trump end of things and it will usher in the mike pence end of things so that that's in i don't know really what what's getting traded there but i think you know do you remember that tng episode and it was an early one and it's like where that guy's head got blown up i'm blanking on it right now but it's everyone's being controlled by those like alien things that i think were eventually maybe sort of like like a proto Borg trill, like they, they would control people's minds and like live inside of them and stuff. And that one dude like swallowed like the alien thing whole in his mouth. And then Riker and Picard blew his head up with phasers. Right. And the end of the episode is the both, the both of them finding that alien creature out in like a corner in the corner of a room or something. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't remember that one. Yeah, that was a creepy episode when I was a kid. But I think about, <laughs> I think about again, you know, like the the corruption of leadership, and and maybe you can kind of take that as as a bit of a corruption of leadership, and you know, you're sort of like, could could you believe that these guys would get away with it? I think that's the scary part, Shashank, is they they have, and and maybe that also says something about Starfleet in the sense that if there are so many bad morals, maybe you know there still is a house to clean in the twenty fourth century, and you know. I don't necessarily find it baffling that people in those places of power where, you know, they really are separated from the people they represent in a fundamental way. They start acting like, like, like the way they're acting with greed and, and stuff like that. And maybe there's a separation, you know, the loneliness of leadership, um, the way it's structured. And if you think about Starfleet, these bad morals, you know, did they start off bad or did they become bad? And, and, and that's my question about some of the people inside of the Trump administration. Well, that's what we are here for, is to ask questions like that. And we will keep all our listeners informed. I actually met a few people at STLV who said, we are the only source of news they go to because news is so hopeless. Oh, my God. So, yeah, <laughs> this is this is a really good time for us to tell them that, yes, we will be responsible and we'll make sure we give you all the highlights and updates in our future episodes. But when you're used to news being so negative, you'll take anything you can get. And that was what this news was. But unfortunately, we have to move on to something uh, really disastrous happening in my country. And uh, Canada is a coastline state. It's at the very south of my country. And it's a small state full of nature. And uh, it's a predominantly Christian state. So it's one of those states in which the population is not Hindu mainly, but Christian and it's a very it's like almost going to a different time because the architecture is uh, very much inspired by the eastern european re- religious sex and uh, like the dutch colonized there for a while so there is a lot of that influence anyway all a lot of that culture and history and but most importantly the people have all been disrupted because for the last month there have been biblical proportions of floods that have caused over 800,000 people to be displaced and millions of rupees in damage and everyone that is being found is being sent to either camps or they're being moved to nearby states above them but uh, yeah there is the country was never prepared for an emergency like this and the death toll just keeps rising and everything tangible can of course be replaced but the fact that so many lives have been devastated is 
it's heartbreaking to me i spent a good amount of time in kerala it's one of my favorite places to visit so i'll i'm i'm heartbroken i and 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 shashank my my heart goes out to you and and the people who are in kerala being being hit by this and you know i think i think it's important as well just you know a person who grew up in the west myself you know we always hear about these floods you know like they're a world away and i think that's important and and again you know if we if we take a star a star trek idea to this you know you're we're all members of this planet and if something happens this affects us all and if you think about the federation something bad happens on one side of the federation you know the other side needs to feel it they need to they need to feel that 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 connection to you know the people who share um you know in their case the galaxy but in this case you know this planet this land that we all live in and yeah i mean you know, you look at it it's such a small state uh, comparatively you know like you think about the state of hyderabad hyderabad or you know anywhere around there they're all much larger and this seems like a place where people like to holiday and enjoy themselves is that correct Oh absolutely it's it's one big tourist destination lot of uh, nature mountains the weather uh, is is fairly pleasant most of the year and it's like if you drive far enough you can get to a beach if you drive uh, inward enough you'll get to a really nice mountain range so it's definitely a lot of nature and yeah. a really big tourist destination yeah and so and so if you think about it there's a lot of people there who i think who were you know they they work they work in, and live in a very um you know a a place that that holds a lot of you know a lot of the country of india's pride and the fact that that now you know this this one country on this large planet is experiencing this you know i think i think we as as people over here do need to be willing to open our hearts to that so yeah shashank i'm i'm really sorry and um you're right the tangible physical material things don't matter it's the life that that we need to mourn here the weird part is after i went through the morning process and i read everything that i could and i got myself to turn it into uh, numbers and statistics so i could understand the problem better M- most articles that i found actually say that the whole thing could have been avoided and the entire flood crisis is due to climate change it's in happening in a country where there is already overpopulation uh, it's the second largest populated country in the world the it's the one of the most densely populated places in the world just square foot and per number of people per square foot wise and just that all of that was known people were aware i was aware as a child uh, especially when the tsunamis occurred granted that was a lot more to do with mother nature but kerala was one of those places that was in danger of being affected because it's right above the indian ocean and this was always in the cards this was eventually going to happen and it was entirely avoidable it brings to mind to me force of nature the next generation episode in which the enterprise is stalled by two what everybody thinks are clear crackpots at the beginning scientists who say hey you need to chill down with that warp because it is destroying the fabric of space time and it's not that dissimilar like when 
when you clearly hear of a problem that can be avoided if steps are taken and the right measures are put in place and you still reject them in favor of economic gain and letting things run like they are, this is what you would end up with is a force of nature like situation. Yeah. And and it's not the people who made the choice to do nothing are going to be the ones who are going to suffer right away either. One thing one thing as well, just, I don't know, maybe as, as a bit of an irony is Star Trek did did talk about the environment in that TNG episode. And it's not the it's not the first time and it's not the last time it did it. But I really like Shashank that, you know, they, they did this whole like, oh, warp five, you know, is or warp seven, I can't remember, like, you know, is as high as you can go. And as far as I recall, no other episode is that ever brought up again. Right. So kind of like how they're uh, like, hey, geez, I wonder if this coastline is going to disappear due to global warming. And then nothing, <laughs> and then nothing happened, <laughs> except the global and warming and the coastline disappearing. Right. It's ironically, again, intentionally or unintentionally, and if it was intentional, it was genius, is uh, that how the real world plays out when it comes to matters of the environment. They're told, hey, this is wrong, stop it. And then it's never addressed again until push comes to shove. But uh, we go from nature trying to kill us to man-made technology trying to kill us. Uh, with uh, There is a really cool news article. This is being reported from the New York Post. Uh, it's an article from 22nd August. And I'm just having trouble articulating it because it's both funny and terrifying at the same time. So it's like a nervous laughter that I'm having, listeners. Uh, but uh, a Russian weapons company has unveiled, I kid you not, This these are not in air quotes, this is real journalism being reported, a 13-foot gold killer robot. <laughs> I just love how, how, how like we have to get that, that, that adjective in, it's gold. It, it it looks like to me and and um those of you uh, who were were old enough uh, but not too young in the 90s you might remember a tv show called exo squad or or like the video game mech warrior it, it's basically like a golden mech warrior or or exo suit kind of thing it's a, a weapons company they're touted to be the next big thing in warfare and of course it's out of russia leaving star trek aside for a second have we learned nothing from robocop <laughs> it kind of looks like that other robocop that kept saying stop or i'll shoot and just kept shooting everyone and this is this seems to be i'm sure we'll share this article when we get the episode out so our uh, listeners can also look at it but it's it's everything that star trek has warned us about it's Technology taking over, us getting too comfortable with the power of the weapons that we have. It's not drawing a moral line between the weapons. It's like all of us embracing nomad. Right? Like we're asking for nomad to happen. We're saying bring him on our ship so we can make him part of our lives. And not only do we want him here, we are going out of our way to further everything in the reality that we live in so we can get nomad and and it, it is that kind of continuous you know weaponization of something like i mean you know in 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 my heart of hearts i see actually a machine like this in star trek it's lifting heavy things right like that that's where that's where i would see like you're just looking at it i'm like why does this thing have to kill people and like blow stuff up like why can't it like lift girders or something like why can't it have a functional role 
instead of instead of this continuous like one-upsmanship that they seem to be obsessed with doing right um you know it, it reminds me of uh, the sticking with tos you know the idea that that what kind of weapons did they have like they had like two on the ship like two that fired out of the ship and then like you had a phaser or like the phase rifle and it's never it's never that elaborate in star trek i mean the only species that ever has like an elaborate set of weaponry and most of it's like quaint archaic weaponry is the klingons with their with their batleths and mechleths and stuff like that outside of that the federation has like two choices for for weaponry and it's like a phaser or a phase rifle whereas here we're just finding all these new elaborate ways to blow ourselves up and yeah i don't know Make that thing, like, lift roofs or something. I don't know. Or send it to help with property and people damage when floods happen halfway across the world. Uh, Just a radical idea. But hey, Deford, correct me if I'm wrong, the origin of where the Borg come from is never explained, right? Um, No, not to my knowledge. Now, I'm going to out myself as a not-Voyager completionist, totally, or at least I think I've seen every episode once, and therefore it's like being in an airport. You know, does that mean you've been in the town? Like watching an episode once for me with Star Trek doesn't constitute full full bore. So I'm sure one of our listeners can reach out if I'm wrong, but nobody ever explained how they got their half humanoid, half circuitry structure, and why they look the way they do. But I'm sure it was somewhere in the near present, near future somebody invented a weapon and they said, you know what would be cool if this looked like a half human and they just made it into a half human. And then they decided, you know, what would be even cooler is if we turn this thing into like its own intelligence. So it can go behave and play around on its own and we can be the masters of it. Uh, That's the idea of the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica also is uh, make this thing that looks like us, feels like us and makes our lives better and protects us. It's a, it's just a very, it's, all pulp sci-fi hg wales harlan ellison terrifying star trek episode sci-fi just all of the warnings come to life and we are still rejecting them so we can have a gold killer robot that just (laughs) that terrifies me yeah i I read um little shout out to reading trek i read federation back in the day which if anyone hasn't read it it's probably one of my favorite star trek novels next to like a stitch in time but um, it's basically a confluence of uh, Captain Kirk, John Luke Picard, and Zephyr Cochran meeting up. But in Zephyr Cochran's time, of course, the planet is you know on the brink of destroying itself. Right? They haven't they haven't managed warp technology yet, but they're definitely you know getting around. I guess they've they've developed it, but um, it's not ubiquitous yet, and the world really is in a lot of trouble. And yeah, I mean, again, it's it's just these weapons, weapons, weapons that that are used to blow people out of the sky, or you know all that sort of stuff that, that Zephram has to deal with, uh, in at least sort of the first third of his story. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not excited about this, uh, this robot, unless it's like, <laughs> unless it's, unless it's to like, like erect telephone poles, which would be like a badass thing. I, I would get a job doing that. Um, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not really happy about it and it's gold. <laughs> like what the heck? I don't know why it's gold. Like who decided like, that the most ominous weapon potentially that could bring about the end of the world should be gold color. But Barry, I think uh, we have talked enough news for everybody who is listening. I'm sure they're here to enjoy that 
big, meaty, delicious main segment of an interview that we have. So what do you say we get to it, man? That was awesome. On, on with the main topic. Delighted and honored to welcome Mr. Jake Quo today to talk primarily about communication online through a Star Trek context, but also his work with Mr. George Takei and perhaps the polytracks of some of Jay's favorite episodes, characters, and series. But first, a little bit about Jay. He's a Stanford grad, and it is there that he wrote and produced his first of four full-length musicals. In his latest musical, Allegiance, that starred George Takei and covers the experience of interned Japanese-American citizens during the Second World War, Jay was the lyricist, composer, and book writer. Jay has won many prestigious awards for his work in the musical circuit, but that's not all. Jay also studied at Berkeley School of Law, and he went on to be an appellate litigator, admitted to the California Bar, and to practice before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. We're not done, though. Jay also is the co-founder of The Social Edge, which manages George Takei's social media empire of over 22 million fans and is a digital publishing house in its own right. Also, Jay was kind enough to share some of his time with us, talk Trek, and some of the socio-political issues associated with the franchise. Jay, it is a pleasure to chat with you again. I'm glad to be here. It's uh, it really is. We uh, we were really excited to get to meet Jay just after we had our uh, photo shoot with uh, Mr. George Takei. So first and foremost, Jay, what what brings you to Star Trek? What where where did you? Uh, what's your Star Trek origin story? Well, uh, you know, growing up, George Takei was the only Asian face on television for us, and so it was really really special for us to uh, to gather together to watch Star Trek. Because here was this Asian man who was um, very capable and respected and um, not stereotypical. Uh, he didn't do kung fu and he didn't talk in an accent. He didn't have big buck teeth. And so um, it was uh, sort of a role model for us. And you know, every time that um, we role played as kids on Star Trek, we all wanted to, play, we all wanted to be Sulu. Uh, and whoever didn't get to be Sulu at least got to be Spock because that was the next best Asian thing. So um, <laughs> we, we uh, of course, my, my brother, John, my oldest brother, was a huge sci-fi um, guy and, and got us all into Star Trek. And, you know, we watched it over and over. And, and it was interesting because my father limited the amount of time that we could watch television. And he was skeptical about this fantasy in space. But we talked to him and showed him that it had a lot of important life lessons in it. And it was a good show for kids to watch. And he finally agreed. And he watched some of them with us. And so our experience, you know, growing up, uh, I watched these in syndication, um, but they were really, really um, you know, formative to my thinking. That's awesome. Uh, and we'll talk about George Takei uh, a little further. I say George Takei like I know him. We'll talk about Mr. Takei a little further. Uh, but uh, before we get into that, we, I am, and I'm sure Barry is too, we're fascinated by allegiance. 
And uh, I we had a question about just your thought process when you were working on Allegiance and coming up with all of it. It seems to be very poignantly conscious, and you mentioned that earlier, about minorities, and especially for undocumented, illegal, quote-unquote, immigrants or minority immigrants, whatever you'd like to call it. Was that a conscious bend when you were coming up with the project, or did you just decide I'm going to keep this historically accurate and just let it see how it turns out. Well, you know, George was the actual inspiration for Allegiance because I met him by chance in New York City while while attending an off-Broadway show. And he was sitting behind me and uh, and I heard him talking to his husband, Brad, and I recognized the voice right away because it was the voice I had grown up with, you know. And so uh, I turned around and there's my childhood hero sitting in a row behind me. Um, and we struck up a conversation and we talked about theater. And I thought that was going to be the coolest day of my life, meeting George Takei in, a, in an off-Broadway theater. Just the four of us, my, my friend Lorenzo, my producing partner, he was there, too. What's amazing to me is how the universe conspires, because the, the very next day, Lorenzo and I go to see In the Heights, and we've been dying to see this musical, and we sit down, and who is in our row four seats down but George Takei and his husband Brad? <laughs> we couldn't believe it. <laughs> and and Brad said, well, now I think you're stalking us. <laughs> and we were laughing about it, and we just couldn't <laughs> believe the coincidence that that would happen. And it was during In the Heights um, where Allegiance was born. And the story is very interesting because I look over during one of the songs and George is there crying, weeping copious tears. And I, I needed to know at intermission what caused him to, to cry so much. It was a song being sung by the father character in the musical. And, and when I asked George at intermission... He said that song reminded him of his own father's struggles to help his family while they were interned in the camps uh, during World War II. And he started telling me a story that I had read about in the history books, maybe a couple paragraphs that I had actually studied as part of the Korematsu decision in, in constitutional law. But I never dreamed I would hear a story directly from the mouth of an of a actual survivor of the internment camps, let alone George Takei. And so uh, I was getting goosebumps listening to it because I've been looking for a story, a great story to underlie my next work. And I said to him, I said, Mr. Takei, the story you just told me is so inspiring. I actually, this is going to sound crazy, but I write musical theater and I think that it would make a great Broadway show. And he says, well, I've always wanted to get this on Broadway and tell this story on the main stage. And I said, we must do this. Uh, can I can I send you a storyboard and maybe like a title song or something? And, and he gave me his email. And three weeks later, after I devoured everything I could for three weeks on the internment and everything, I sent him a title song, Allegiance and and a storyboard. And I remember getting the email back and George said, I'm listening to this and crying again. And you must come down to Los Angeles and we must have lunch and talk about this project. And that's how Allegiance was born. You know, I didn't set out to to change history. I didn't set out to teach a lesson. I set out to tell a story inspired by a great man. And along the way, we learned, sadly, in some ways, just how relevant this story still is in even in today's America. And the lessons that we hoped had been taught, but seemed to be flouted again. And so, you know, the contemporary nature of the show 
now. The contemporary relevance is so striking to me. And 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 it's really, really energized George in a way that he never expected. You know, he was 70 when I met him. He's 80 now. He never expected that 10 years after we meet, met, he'd be talking, he had performed on Broadway and, and be bringing this message to audiences all over the country because it matters still. And so, so that's, you know, allegiance. And, and um, it was life-changing. Uh, that encounter and the work that we did together, the seven years we spent together developing the show, raising the money, casting it, doing workshops, having an out-of-town world premiere, and then bringing it finally to Broadway. It was a dream come true. Yeah, that's incredible. That's... Um yeah, I, I, I actually just seriously don't have words, other than you know, uh, one other one other sort of feather in your cap. I've 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 you know, getting to research EJ was was fantastic because you are you yourself are very a very fascinating individual with all the things you've accomplished. But you were able to very much utilize social media to get allegiance to the mainstream, to the public ear, uh, and, and into the public consciousness. Um, before we ask sort of the next question, just sort of as a, as a follow up and as a segue. What what was that process like getting the uh, getting the message of allegiance out? Well, it was interesting. In around 2011, we need, we knew that we needed to start to build an audience as this show headed toward um, a production um, out of town, and it was Lorenzo, my producing partner, who is a really really amazing guy, and he's actually got a technical background. He's behind the search engine technology that underlies the engine Bing, and so he knows his internet <laughs> inside out. He knows um, organic search, and he was interested in this new thing, social media. And he said to me, we need an audience for Allegiance. George probably has a lot of Star Trek fans and maybe some LGBT fans. Maybe George should get a Twitter. And George said, well, I've got a blog. Um, I could I could learn how to tweet. And so with some guidance from me and uh, and some heavy editing, because George is verbose, trying to get him under 140 characters is, is difficult. But uh, we set out, we, we launched George Takei in 2011 on social media. And we never thought for a moment that we would do anything with this except get an audience for Allegiance. <laughs> That's why we did it. You know, and and I guess later that year in October or something, Facebook pages came out, and and we said, well, George, you're successful on Twitter. Why don't we get you a Facebook page? You know, we'll we'll help you run it. We'll find content for it. You just comment on things, and and uh, we had no idea that George would go on to become the number one celebrity on social media. He was just ranked number one again by Hollywood Reporter just this week, and had had I known at the time how his life was going to change and my life was going to change and that I would be running a social media empire now for him, for him built upon the idea that we needed an audience for a musical that had yet to happen. I would have called you crazy. That doesn't make any sense, but that's exactly what happened. So it's interesting that you went from George can just comment on things to George now essentially owns Twitter and he, he is Everywhere and everything, I'm sure you deal with armies and armies of people who are trying to get his account down. And on the other side, you deal, I'm sure, with overflowing positivity every day. So it's a it's a very interesting dichotomy, I'm sure, right? Oh, yes. You know, we, George is um, – you can't be as vocal as George and as solid as George without developing both a lot of friends and a good number of enemies. And so um, I would say, you know – 
George, we try to keep George out of uh, the fray, the, the, the troll attacks and the, even the Russian bot attacks. We, our accounts are, are attacked regularly by tr- uh, armies of people sent from right-wing sites uh, to go and harass fans, to create negative energies around our posts, to uh, destroy our publishing partners with fake traffic, all kinds of things, uh, just in an effort to try to silence George. And so, thank goodness, we've we've had a, a great security team and a really smart guy at the top who used to, you know, he, he invented the search engine behind Bing, so he knows how to deal with issues of security and issues of online mayhem. And so, you know, that's part of the job. It's, you know, no fight worth fighting. I think it's George that said that no cause worth fighting for doesn't happen without a fight. So... Here we are fighting in the trenches on his behalf and on behalf of what is good and noble. And so um, I get to get up every day and, and, and fight that fight on his behalf. And it's, it's, a, it's a continuing honor to do so. That's, that's wonderful. And, and, you know, to build on that, it seems like online communication to some seems almost like a new dimension of communication. I'm wondering if you would agree with that statement or, you know, as someone who works so in depth in that field, would you say that there are parallels to other forms of communication or communicative behaviors? Sort of, you know, what, what sort of things have you experienced in the dimension of online communication? So it's interesting, you know, um, social media was supposed to be a great way for people, um, especially the voiceless, to have an equal footing that everybody would have a chance to be at the table. And as it turns out, that's not always such a great thing. By by completely leveling the playing field and allowing, for example, uh, a story from Infowars to have as much real estate on a news feed as the story from the New York Times does, you wind up creating false equivalences in people's minds. And uh, people hadn't really thought a lot of this through. When uh, Facebook first got started, it made a lot of sense to say, oh, we're going to show you the things that you tend to engage with, and we're going to... Um, reshow them to you if you've had a history of engaging with them. And thus was born the great filter bubbles. And I remember re- before even this became an issue, I woke up in a sweat one night and I called Lorenzo and I said, oh my gosh, do you know what's happening? We're creating uh, echo chambers on the left and right. This is before echo chambers really even started as a thing. I started realizing the Facebook algorithm, which we study in battle all the time, is, uh, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> and the algorithms are going to sort us into tribes and keep us there. And, and if, they, if Facebook doesn't do something about this soon, it's going, the damage will be irreparable. <laughs> and I remember that, that moment really, really vividly because I realized that as somebody who curates and, and manages the content that reaches now 22 million people on George's behalf, we have an obligation in many ways to uh, get things right and not to be part of the problem, to, but to be part of, of online solutions. And so we take that very, very seriously. Unfortunately, not everybody does, and some people actually take advantage of it. And so I think now, after we've come through a, a bruising period of fake news, of bots and trolls, of negativity and I think that having come through that, Facebook grew, grew up a lot. I think Mark Zuckerberg grew up a lot during that. And they're starting to take some decisive actions. They're starting to step up. But we haven't seen the end of, of the problems. The problems will morph. The problems will change. And, and we have to have the foresight and the wisdom to deal with them. 
it's interesting. When you go on social media and you post, um, in a way, you are curating what you believe is the best version of yourself in many ways. It's it's not actually real. It's like a reality television show. Each person has an opportunity to be their own producer and and to put their best stuff forward. Not everybody does it, but those who do consistently get rewarded with likes, with comments, with shares, and then the algorithm picks it up and rewards it further. And so it starts to stratify people. Those who are excellent at curating themselves and putting their message out, they get rewarded with bigger and bigger audiences and bigger and bigger reach. And uh, those who do not, who fail at that, become silenced. And it's a curious thing that happens. It's, uh, it, you know, it, very quickly the haves and the have-nots on social media become apparent. And, and so there's going to be courses taught, you know, one day, I think, on, on how all of that happened and what, what people did about it. So that's, that's kind of my current thing. And maybe it comes off a little too negative because I owe a lot to social media. I owe everything I, I do now to social media. But I know how dangerous a weapon it can be, how, how putting someone in the fishbowl and then giving them a megaphone can be it, – it's, con, it's contrary, right? It, it's, it doesn't make sense when yet we do it. Putting someone in a fishbowl and giving them a megaphone is essentially how our president got elected. Exactly. <laughs> right. Jay, I wish I knew you when I was writing my master's thesis because I did a master's on youth communication online and how it affects student populations, normative cruelties and all that sort of stuff. And uh, just the insights here, you've hit a lot of nails right on the head for, for what I experienced even in terms of um, certain things getting traction and all that sort of stuff. That's, uh, that's very, very insightful of you to, to, to point out. So moving on to get the, the bigger picture of the trek of Polytrex, uh, our lives, uh, three of ours, are very much revolved around Star Trek. And Jay, I'm sure, being associated with Mr. Takei, you often have to do a lot of things revolving around Trek. And while Trek was uh, really successful in predicting everything from some of our political diplomatic issues, the way the world functions today, to the flip phone, to instant food. Uh, but while all that was done, I feel one place Star Trek was lacking was actually predicting something like social media. Would you agree to that? What, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Well, it depends on whether you think social media is just um, a step to something else that is coming. And that's how I feel right now. I feel like social media is a test. It's a test of our ability when we make the leap from um, an internet to a neural net. Like we have to figure out all the rules and all the privacy and all of the, of the separations before we truly link up as a species. I've given this a lot of thought and it worries me because the internet basically, it's, it is a great democratizer and that, uh, that everybody has a has a chance to shine, has a chance to find audiences, has the chance to have their voice amplified. And we see this function that arises from that. But maybe even within our lifetimes, um, we're talking about technology catching up and allowing us to skip the process of having our, our separate thoughts, for example. And, and instead, we're going to be asked to link up to, you know, I think it's, Elon Musk, who is talking about a neural net where our brain patterns and our thoughts might be 
made available instantaneously to everybody else, that our memories one day might be made available. I was just reading how they transferred a memory from one sea snail to another the other day. This is the first step. And and it's not going to be long from now that we must face the question that I think Star Trek posed very, very clearly, which is in its presentation of the Borg. The Borg and the hive mind where individuality becomes subsumed to a greater consciousness or a greater state, and that the greater state is essentially amoral or, or has no has no central soul to it, is just a machine. That 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 is not far off from now, and the battle that we as a species will face, which is exemplified in the difference between de- democratic societies, where I imagine if you linked the neural net, you'd have all kinds of protections for your privacy and your autonomy and your individuality, compared to autocratic states like Russia or China. If you link up there, whose property are you now? Where, who's, who, who owns your thoughts? Who owns your individuality? And I think that these questions are going to be before us within a matter of decades and that social media is just a little taste of that it's not even the important part it's we can't even get past this we can't get past fake news what about fake thoughts what about false pasts and false memories all of these things you know um they're going to be part of a reality certainly maybe not our generation maybe the next generation and i think star trek hit on this in a terrifying way by by introducing the borg and, and the threat that the hive mind poses to a species like humanity, which thrives upon its diversity and, and thrives upon its individualism. I, you know, that's where I think that Star Trek probably got it right and will have had it right. And, and, and 50 years from now, when we're faced with a Borg-like mind coming out of uh, neurally connected uh, folks over in China who failed the, to, to get past basic democratic securities and instead surrendered their their individualism to the state, that we will be facing this question. And people will say, you know, Star Trek got it right. Star Trek warned us about this. And, you know, so that's that would be my my Trek prediction. And I think the, the battle to come is not over fake news. It's not over Russian bots. It's over our identity as a species. And uh, this, this is the first time in, in human history where all of humanity is, has the potential to be linked up. And the next step is all, of the hu- all human minds have the potential to join and, and, and share in knowledge and share in thought, to loan our brain processing to great adventures and great um, deeds, but also poses a great risk because uh, when you pull that switch, there's no real going back. You better be ready. We better be ready. Absolutely. The um, It actually reminds me of a young adult fiction novel called Feed. It's by Matthew Tobin Anderson. I read it a long, long time ago. And it's basically, yeah, people, I mean, social media is basically an implant in their brain. And it's it's young people having to cope with the pressures of constant advertisement that that come to them in their dreams and their ability to basically text each other via brainwaves to one another and the amount of of sort of it's a dystopian sort of cyberpunk model model of the future so obviously it's not it doesn't have a happy ending it's not a it's not a feel good hit of the summer kind of read but i think you're i think you're on point there and so with with just kind of thinking about that trace me app that uh, we were talking about before recording, George Takei has set up his his social media empire definitely via Facebook and Twitter, but also he has this no troll policy 
on the Trace Me app, where it is a lot more positive information and people being able to communicate in a more positive manner. Do you see viability in attempting to create these sort of safer, more, shall we say, possibly manicured spaces for people to communicate, to, to maybe train them or to maybe get them into a better mindset before they, they go you know, sort of neck deep into the, the wilds of the Twitterverse? <laughs> Well, certainly um, from a commercial standpoint, a troll-free environment is someplace where advertisers and sponsors would certainly feel much more comfortable. One of the great drawbacks of George being as prominent as he is is that uh, we are constantly bombarded with people just even sending pornographic stuff uh, right into the streams. And it's so it's difficult to to get corporate sponsors and, and deals done uh, with that sort of background. And so just fr- from a brand perspective, certainly a, a cleaner manicured, more manicured, as you say, environment is preferable. But more than that, I think George at age 82 deserves a break. <laughs> I think that he should be able to talk to his fans without somebody typing in all caps and calling him, you know, all manner of things and where he can log on. And, and I don't have to worry that he's going to be kept up at night because some crazy person threatened him or whatever. So, uh, you know, for his sake, I think that to interact with his his real fans, people who really admire him and want to know, you know, um, about his day to day and his his thoughts, you know, in a respectful way. That's a much better environment. Now, is it is it going to pay off? Is it going to pan out? You know, you never know these things. You you have to try a lot of of um, new media in order to see whether there's something superior or at least in addition to. So it'd be a, like a plus where where George can say, okay, I know Facebook is a cesspool. <laughs> I know Twitter. You know, I I'm gonna I'm going to be called all manner of things and and. I don't mind because none of my true friends are there. My true friends are all over it at this other app, Trace Me, when I've got to know people, right? And um, and George likes to get to know people. He remembers people. Like like uh, even I, I think Barry, you said he remembered. You asked the question uh, during yeah. Q and A, and then when you came up to get a photo with him, he remembered you. He's good that way. He actually takes the time with fans, and he's sharp. Yeah. He'd love to be able to take the time, you know, and and interact truly with people on a personal level without, you know, in a moderated place, you know, where where uh, he doesn't have to spend time setting up troll traps. And we used to set troll traps. You know what those are? <laughs> no. What are they? So occasionally on Twitter, um, we would do something to really try to piss off the right wing um, trolls. Um, we would, I think, at one time we decided that Milo Yiannopoulos and all his we we're going to call him King of the Mushrooms, yeah, and and that that the mushrooms would gather under their king, and and so, but so many so many of them appeared in this thread that it was easy to just go block 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 all the way down. So it was like setting up a little roach motel, where the trolls just can't help themselves. They all show up in mass, and then it's easy to ban them in mass, right? It's like yeah, it's like shooting <laughs> trolls in an echo chamber. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I just love the idea of a roach motel. <laughs> yeah, it was a troll motel, right? You set a, tra- a troll trap, and they can't help themselves. Even if you call it, even if you say, I'm setting a troll trap, so if there are any trolls out there, here's your chance to shine. And believe it or not, they come out. They can't help themselves. <laughs> so, you know, or, you know, go do something like insult Alex Jones or, or um, Laura Ingraham, and you've got, you've got lots of them just piled up there. 
you know, unfortunately, um, I, I wish we could keep up with the bots as well. They're they're trickier. The the Russian bots are, are entirely different. Um, they're like tribbles. <laughs> they just multiply. <laughs> you can't stop them. <laughs> right. And, but they're uh, not as cute. And, and millions of uh, dollars or, uh, and Rubik's just go into funding them. And it's also particularly troubling that it's a it's a it's an enemy that has been building for some time, especially if you're thinking from the perspective of someone like George Takei, who's trying to be positive and inclusive when it's something as as simple as like an image that you'd probably quote unquote, if you were a troll, you'd call savage, right? Or you'd use a funny way to spread a word that that becomes infectious and toxic. How how do you think, uh, not just maybe from the perspective of Trace Me, but social media in general and culture in general, how do you think you combat something that, that negative and something that's so catchy, if you will, uh, by... How do you put that down and how do you nurture what George does with his with his use of social media? So George and I have spoken at length about what to do about the trolls, I mean, as a problem. And because, you know, his husband certainly would prefer it if we dealt with them harshly and reported them or, you know, did, did the things that that you you would normally do if you felt like they were getting under your skin. And uh, the important thing is never to make it clear in any way that the trolls have succeeded in getting under Mr. Takei's skin. He is made of Teflon. <laughs> and so I remember George said it to me. He said, well, we, 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 should, we should be funny. We should come back, come back at them with humor. And, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, so this one troll uh, just, I remember, just left a message saying, George Takei, you suck. Right, just just you suck, and George says, "Tell him and very well, I hear." <laughs> and it was so funny, you know that that like you can't help it. It's just like it's such a burn, right? It's just a great burn, and you know I think that he's he's taken he's taken that sort of attitude toward anybody who sort of comes for him. He just he he's able to to in that very Buddhist way laugh at the situation and and diffuse it and and when you do that the trolls have very little power you know they just don't have very much power that's uh yeah it's kind of like a uh, like an internet aikido sort of taking their energy and using it against them i like that yeah. <laughs> so uh, sort of as we asserted before you know and 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 i think i think you've managed to to explain through that you know if if trek missed you know the online communication boat when actually i think yeah you, it is brought up very well in the borg do you see star trek's message as having a part in the development of this positive online culture even if you were to use like the borg as sort of the negative target like if if that's where you know that could be where we're headed unfortunately but how do you see that art shaping advances in technology you know say if we use that franchise or using allegiance and it's it's deeper meanings and and you know kind of modern messages how do you see that art in shaping these advances in technology i think it's pretty clear that star trek painted an optimistic vision of human humanity's future when one where um, we share resources we lose our uh, um, love for money and and instead there's there's sufficient wealth and prosperity for all people to actualize their potential. I think that's very clear in the notion of both Starfleet and the United Federation of Planets uh, and the notion that replicators uh, can solve 
um, a lot of the human wants and needs. Um, and so so we we can turn to developing our um, technology and our and, and our civilization, our society. There are there are hints of that now. I mean, you look at something like Wikipedia, which didn't exist, you know, what is it, twelve years, thirteen years ago, but you know, there are people contributing their knowledge to a vast database uh, with without an expectation of a pecuniary gain, but only in the interest of of knowledge and science. So there's there's an enormous potential for the internet and for social media to do good. To, to spread positivity. You know, when George first discovered the power of social media, it was during the, the Japanese tsunami. It was, it was March of 2011, and uh, George had just started on Twitter. I happened to be at the uh, Red Cross breakfast in New York City. I'd never been to a Red Cross function, but my friend invited me there, and I happened to be sitting next to the president of the Red Cross. <laughs> and that everyone was talking about the tsunami as it was happening. Is bizarre, like surreal. And I thought George, being a Japanese-American, probably the most recognized Japanese face, he should tweet. So I called George up. I woke him up. Actually, I, th- I was afraid I was waking up because it was only like 5 a.m., but he says he's already been up. The relatives have called to say they're okay, but he was devastated by what he was seeing and what can we do? So I turned to the president of the Red Cross and I said, uh, I, George Takei and I are talking right now. It can can there be a fundraiser or something? He's like, oh sure, just text nine zero nine nine nine, and uh, it donates ten dollars to the Red Cross Relief Fund. So that's what we set out sent out as a tweet. But George uh, killed it with his hashtag. He said, "Add today we are all Japanese. Add that." And and I said, "That's brilliant. <laughs> that is brilliant." Because uh, the message was so on point, that skyrocketed George. Every celebrity I knew t- retweeted that. Today we are all Japanese and donate ten dollars to the Red Cross. Through that and other efforts, Red Cross raised about seven million dollars. And George understood uh, immediately the power that social media had. He was instantly invited to go on to CNN, MSNBC, uh, CBS to go to talk about what was happening there and to um, explain the impact. And so it was uh, an incredible moment, but an example of how social media can be used for good, can be used to organize people, to uh, fight, to collectively pool resources and to make a difference. And so that's the kind of thing that we choose to focus on. That's the kind of thing that, that George has been able to do with his social media. And, and that's uh, really where... Uh, his his social media presence also bleeds into like some of his real world work. I see every now and then he'll promote uh, he he'll promote some of the positive things that other people are doing. So in a way, he's also a network for everybody to get recognition when he believes and agrees with the cause. So that's really credit to him, but also credit to you and what the team does at your end. So uh, I really personally would. I'm just happy to be experiencing this in a in a in a universe full of social media negativity. It's nice to have someone like uh, George Takei, who's the torchbearer for positivity and responding to everything with unwavering courage, which I think is very Star Trekky. Wouldn't you agree? I agree. I think that he embodies the the uh, the values of Star Trek in so doing. I would also fully agree with that. He he drove uh, he drove the ship, and uh, and he's he's doing his utmost to uh, to drive the the ship of social media in the right direction. 
I think that's about all the time we have. But Jay, when do you have any questions for us at all? Well, what's what's next in store for you guys? Uh, what are your plans for Pilotrex? Oh boy, uh, we've got a couple of. Uh, couple of things coming down the pipe we have another debate coming along with uh one of shashank's friends on a uh, one of the jj abrams movies uh coming up and then um yeah we're going to be talking a bit about picard's arrival yeah and one one very important episode that i'm excited for stemmed from a conversation at stlv with barry he was asking me why do people attend conventions and then we got into a 30 minute discussion and we realized this should be a really good podcast. I, I hope I'm not taking too much of your time. Can I ask you a couple of nerdy Star Trek questions? Oh, sure. I hope I can answer them. <laughs> oh, you, You'll do great, I promise. Is it safe to assume that your favorite Star Trek character is Hikaru Sulu? I would say that it's it's two captains, Hikaru Sulu of the Excelsior and Jean-Luc Picard. <laughs> nice. Nice. Do you know that, that uh, Patrick Stewart and George Takei met one time on an airplane? And do you know the story? It's so fascinating. No. So I know the story, but I'm I'm just happy to hear it again. George George looks over and there is Patrick Stewart on the same plane as him. And he, he's looking at him and and he finally walks over to him just to make sure that it is him and he says, Aren't you? And then Patrick Stewart looks at George and says, Well, aren't you? <laughs> and that was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> That would have been the greatest flight of all. The the two two of the greatest Starfleet captains on one ship. Yes. Uh, here's here's another one. Uh, what is your favorite Star Trek episode and why? So it's actually an uh, episode from the Next Generation, um, and it's yesterday's Enterprise. Blasphemy! Blasphemy! <laughs> um, I loved uh, the the twist on that, and I loved the story writing so much on on that one, um, and the the courage that uh, the crew showed um, in the face of that. The idea that you could go down in order to change the timeline that you had lived in for all your life, basically, uh, in, in order to stop uh, something that, that you had only an inkling might, might, might help. And in so doing, destroy your entire universe, basically. <laughs> it was fa- a fascinating concept, and it is actually the thing that got me in uh, into uh, reading about quantum physics and about um, the multiverse. And so uh, I credit that episode with sparking my imagination around those fascinating concepts. Awesome! I'm uh, I'm uh, I'm a particular fan of yesterday's Enterprise as well. I have uh, some other TNG episodes, but uh, Mr. Decay, if you're hearing, mine is a mock time. It's definitely not from the next generation, so clearly you know who's picking favorites here. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Jay, if we were to find you somewhere on a starship, on a Starfleet ship, where would we find you? (laughs) You'd find me in um, Sherlock Holmes' holodeck. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) Because I I love the idea of of inventing reality and and, and having characters who may not even know that they are characters in their own reality. (laughs) <laughs> that is very yesterday's enterprise of you. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, Jay, before we get out of here, where can people find you? How can they find you? You have a pretty big following. Tell us uh, how we all of us can join you and follow you. Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at NYCJAYJAY. And I have the advantage, of course, George likes to retweet my things because I, I can say and do things that he would never do. <laughs> <laughs> So you can find me on Twitter there, or you can follow me on Facebook, also NYCJAYJAY. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, Jay, for coming on the show. This has been a distinguished pleasure, and uh, we look forward to communicating with you further on the social medias. Wonderful. Live long and prosper. Well, folks, that uh, that should be wrapping up the show. We would like to thank Jay for coming on. That was a fantastic interview. It was great to get to know him at STLV, and it'll be great to just remain in contact and uh, learn more about uh, his endeavors and also Team Decay, which is also pretty darn cool. With that, of course, we um, always invite you to check out our other podcasts as well and to just, you know, if you're moseying around the uh, the, the Tricorder Transmissions page. You can always leave us a message. You can support us on Patreon. Check us out on different social medias. Um, but yeah, definitely, you you can definitely leave, leave us a message, which I believe a listener did, Shashank. It was a beautiful voicemail, to say the least. It's uh, from someone who enjoyed our second episode in which I try to convince you to come around on The Traveler. And let's hear what our delightful listener has to say. Hey guys, this is Eric. My um, Twitter handle is Scruffy underscore Mind. Like in Scruffy Minds. Exiles quote. Anyway, I wanted to tell you guys that I really appreciate you. And I just started listening to the podcast uh, a couple of days ago. And I caught up with them. <clears throat> able to listen to them while I work often. But anyway. I uh, really appreciate the, the the amount of time you obviously put into this and the intelligence and the, the care. Obviously, love the show. And I appreciate the diverse opinions. And I was thinking about the um, well, second very second episode, you guys talked about The Traveler, who I didn't even realize people didn't like. But I've always, The Traveler episode has always had a special place in my heart. Especially during the end, I felt really connected to and just that idea of transcendence. When I felt as a person I saw, I was really young, well, was a teenager, and it was just made me think about things in a new way and explore things and look things up. Um, the impact of me, and also I've always really liked Wesley. Which I, back then, I didn't, wasn't involved in the fan community, so I didn't realize that all this. Wesley hate, but I always really liked them. And I could see it as a little annoying, but anyway, um, and Will Wheaton seems like an awesome guy. But also, I was thinking about the wormhole aliens slash prophets, and I kind of thought of them, like the whole time thing. I think Cisco, I like the idea, I never thought of them just kind of playing with that, with, with Cisco, and pretending like they didn't know linear time because they're bored, <laughs> which is funny, but that's a little too, uh, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, I don't see the, I think there's more of a love and a tent maybe behind them. And, and the, and if Cisco taught them in the time, then they could just go back in time and that could affect everything from then on. So that kind of works out for me. And, 
Anyway, and uh, like the Jellico debate was really interesting because I don't think I've given it too much in-depth thought. And I just kind of saw him as a jerk. But the I don't remember the names of the of the guy who was debating, but um, he had some good the one for Jellico has some really good points. And another guy he he made a lot of points too. And we're sorry that your audio got cut off, Eric, but thank you very much for all of your insights. That was really great. And we look forward to hearing from more folks. It's just wonderful that we're getting the input that we so very much desire. I am so glad that there are other people out there who like the traveler and they're not, first off, affected in any way by that public notion of perceiving the traveler negatively. Like our listeners say so thoughtfully, they, if you don't know that the traveler is not really popular among the core Trek community, it's a character you like. And I appreciate that he reached out and told us. I highly encourage uh, that discussion to continue. I want everybody's thoughts on what they think of the traveler. I certainly love that character as evident from that episode we did together, but I would love to hear what all of you think and do that for all our episodes. We've talked about a lot of controversial topics. As long as Tricorder keeps us on air, we'll continue doing that. So if you ever hear anything that you feel like you have a thought or two to share about, you can tell us all about it. And where can people tell us about it, Barry? Well, they can uh, definitely do that on uh, on the social medias, so the Twitters and the Facebooks, at Politrex. But uh, you can also review us on iTunes. Um, there's uh, I, Shashank can read the American iTunes reviews, and I can read the Canadian ones, because I can't read the American ones. So that makes me sad. <laughs> uh, that's right. We also have an iTunes page, and if you don't mind, please consider reviewing us there and leaving us a kind word or two just like Bowen25 did recently. His review header reads exactly what Trek is, and he's given us a five-star review. So thank you for that, Bowen25. And he says, I'm saying he, it could be a she. So the person says, if you are a Trek fan and not listening to this podcast, I don't know what you're doing. Thank you. He doesn't say thank you, that's just me. The hosts attack the topics that Star Trek spent its lifespan tackling. What makes this podcast different is how great the hosts are and how they aren't afraid to take on controversial topics in the same way Star Trek does. So, so listeners, gen gentle listener, um, and maybe the person who wrote this, this is my first time hearing this. And um, thank you. Uh, again, I, could, I don't know. <laughs> I, I feel weird with this whole sort of like, I don't know. Are we, are we being self-congratulatory? I'm not sure. Other than, um, yeah, definitely talk to us, folks. This, is, this really makes my day. Earlier today, we got to 316 followers on our Twitter page where we often share just updates about the show. We talk about what's going on in our lives on the channel, but every now and then we make jokes. I try to come up with original jokes and Barry shares smart, insightful things. So you get a bit of both. But just today, we were both in awe that this is what the show has become and it's turning into something a lot bigger than ourselves. And honestly, when we started it, we had a conversation, Barry and I, where it, we just ended up with the understanding and we became comfortable with the fact that nobody would ever listen to it. 
and it would just be a show that 50 years later, Barry and I would just listen to in our cars while we're driving our families in some corners of the world where we are. And that's all the show would ever be. It's just a conversation between two friends who like the politics in Star Trek, but that there are so many people listening to it gives us faith. It gives us conviction that what we're doing means something to people and it gives us incentive to get off our butts and keep recording so you guys can keep listening <laughs> well and 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 i think that uh, that also shashank we we should give props to the people who were around um, the manusadia writer wilhelm dan dv uh, jay kuo for for coming along along with the the ever ever popular mr uh, mr jim from trek ranks and many many more uh, guests to come this show is taking off in directions that we never thought it would but it's they're interesting they're new and we are ready for the challenge so we'll definitely have more debate tracks we'll definitely have more insightful interviews we'll have uh, more discussion more poly tracking of star trek and the real world and we'll keep digging and we hope you keep listening in and tuning in and just if you ever have anything to share about us, we appreciate the reviews. We appreciate the kind words. We appreciate the Patreon donations. And we just appreciate being a part of your life. So thank you for that. Yeah. So yeah, check out our other other podcasts. You can always go out to the Tricorder Transmissions Podcast Network and I guarantee you'll find something awesome. And if you're still looking for some some uh, tasty podcastage out there, you can always check out the Trek Geeks and you can also check out Delta Flyer as well. Both uh, fantastic podcasts from fantastic people. So that Can I make a non-Star Trek podcast recommendation? You know what? Go for it. At the risk of being too brave, I just found out about this recently, but NASA has a podcast that was started in October 2017 called Gravity Assist. And in one episode, they go into a specific place in our solar system. So the first episode is The Sun, and it's a really insightful host who brings in a guest who is an expert on the sun and they just spend 30 minutes talking about the sun and they go into the sun, Venus, Pluto. I've been enjoying hearing that. It's like a really nice non-Star Trek yet somehow very much Star Trek because it deals with the universe. So if you guys are ever in the mood to listen to something non-Star Trek and yet very sciencey and spacey, Gravity Assist by NASA. Well, that's wonderful. So yes, uh, in the topic of space, that's fantastic. And I think I'm going to give that one a chance. So with that, we'll say uh, have a good uh, rest of your days until we meet again and live long and prosper. And onward to Star Society.